Welcome to another episode of the Performance Strategies and Stumbles podcast with me, your host, Dan Howells. Today, I have part two of the podcast with John Noonan returning to share his stumbles and mistakes throughout his career. We dig into programming mistakes, interactions with athletes that could have gone far better, as well as trying to go it alone. So without further ado, let's head straight to this episode with John. So welcome back, everyone. I've got John here with me who spent some time looking at the performance strategy side of, of, of motorsport and the work he does there, which is fascinating. Today, we're going to go a little bit more into John as a practitioner. Um, I'm sure we're going to reflect further back in his career. So, John, I guess my first question is, you know, looking back on your career, what was, some of, what was one of the main standout mistakes you made as an emerging practitioner? Yeah, I would say that one of the areas that I... I very quickly fell into was this bit of ignorance matched with naivety around a belief that programs were the defining the defining level of either your success in individual day to day and or your potential to move on to bigger opportunities in your career and I, the reason i say that is because as a really impressionable young coach who went through a degree who went through a masters and 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 started but didn't finish off a phd was i really lent heavily into the knowledge because I was seeing all these other great practitioners way back in the day at the UKSCA standing on the, you know, these keynote lantern presentations and working with the Lions, working with England rugby. Your name even came out around that sort of time as well. And seeing, right, what are the what are the core competencies that these individuals got? And I think back then, which may be a disservice to where we are today actually, which I think is a little bit more, you know, people are a bit more aware about the soft skills and the importance of that and building relationships. But way back when, it was a, such a competitive industry even still. And have you got a degree to, to, get your, to get your letter on somebody's table and to stay there to then drop into the next round of interviewing? And if you've got a degree, have you got an industry certification such as UKSA and others? So I was so besotted with gathering I think these, what I believe to be absolute critical competencies to get my foot in the door. And then once I'd gotten in the door, really what I, be, what I understood was I worked really hard and I was one of the hardest working people around and it was that level of approach that I'd found success with. So I just lent harder into it. And then I found myself you know, reading as much as I could, developing as much knowledge as I could and gathering other talents and qualities around that space to think I'm going to be the best and coach by my, through, you know, through my knowledge. Yeah. Well, can I dig into that? I'm, I'm yeah. Digging into that because was that knowledge, was that thirst for knowledge and that confidence that it bred for you? quite blinding to some real world solutions so what i mean by that is so obsessed with methods mm. over and templates and schemes that actually i wasn't truly understanding the impact of that program or did i miss opportunities because it was not targeted to anything that that actually that uh, that that athlete actually needed yeah was it limiting even though you were gaining more knowledge i would say it was limiting to what my potential at that point could have been. And, I, and, and there's part of me that thinks, John, just chill out a minute. You know, you, you, you've done the job, you, you get into a role and, you know, build good relationships, do good work and, and evolve that over time. What I found myself doing, perhaps because of where I was as well, I, I'd, I'd gone through a couple of you know, um, voluntary positions within the region, starting a whole city football club. And at the time, you got such a small amount of time to even present, you know, do sessions. You're not in the building 24 seven. So those brief touch points that you have that were, 
I'll do this session. I'll do that session. They were great and they're having impact. And it kind of reinforced this idea that I've just got to keep showing up and doing these amazing sessions of, you know, been, been punchy, been able to coach, but as soon as a problem with their eyes or an individual that was difficult to get compliance with and, or overcome their objections or something, that inevitably would fall away. And I wouldn't deal with it because I just thought it's them, not me. Yeah, program's the right program. It's exactly. not the right people. Yeah. Exactly. And, and I think it, it kind of rolled on for a little while because I was in a couple of academy programs. And my, my second role, my first pro role was at Scunthorpe United Football Club. And it was an internship. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I think even the label of that kind of gave me the grace and time to learn, yeah. to adapt, and just to read and feed off the environment. But invariably, I became, through that, the first team fitness coach. Yet I was on an internship program. It was only my second of a pro role. And that was a real fast track where actually I was trying to lead and coach an average age of, of men that were older than me. Yeah. And they treated me as such. They almost treated me as a bit of a senior academy player, the way that they spoke to me and the camaraderie that was around it, which was fine. It was cool. But when it became time to actually influence people and trying to get them in the white room or do effective things that were going to help them become physically better, I struggled if they weren't willing to come to the party. And that's why think as a coach and as a person i didn't adapt quick enough yeah and it, and it kind of rolled into um i went into rugby a couple of roles later and suddenly i was in a head role and i've been in an academy setting and again i was doing running the same kind of templates the same kind of approach that i'd done work hard develop knowledge and just deliver practice and then when i started to lead some first team plays in that environment that's when i quickly learned that actually from the prior football experience that i'd had i just put some of those behaviors down to football but they were showing up again in rugby to a lesser extent in some instances. It was easier to get guys in the weight room rugby. But I learned from those prior failings of trying to get that trick individual to lift or to listen or to show up on time or work a little bit harder. I started to refine some of those skills a bit more in, in rugby. And it, honestly, it just, it just came, it came purely from a common sense of, let me just understand these people better. Well, this awareness, yeah. Right. If we go back to those programs, like, Dig into the weeds of what that looked like. If somebody was resistant to doing weights, was there a, a did you make mistakes of accommodating the athlete, not accommodating the athlete, or was it this exercise has got to be the thing that we do because that's the gold standard? Yeah, you know, were you inflexible because your programming was a, a reflection of you? Hundred percent, hundred percent. I I looked at individuals as a square peg and my program is a round hole, and this is this is the elite template. So why aren't you doing that? And rather than try to gain some common ground with a person and to speak to them and figure out why is it they're demonstrating an objection to this, I would just level that straight into the physio and or the, or, or the manager and go, because it wasn't a compulsory environment, and just go, this person doesn't want to do it, so you know they've got a pretty bad attitude, rather than I could have overcome maybe and or given that individual a little bit of an in with, let's just do 10 minutes today if that's what you want to do, mate, or what do you want to do? And let's work from that and get some results there and then let's... Let's bring it to the program later. So again, it was still quite an early time in football for lifting weights, especially for first-team players to buy into that. And it was, I'd started to get some joy through certain alphas in the group who, you know, loved training and such. And you kind of get your wins from them. And then that kind of, you know, as an example, spreads a little bit by osmosis into some of the trickier characters. But nonetheless, I didn't, I, I didn't come to the party with a set of tools yeah. socially and psychologically to deal with some of those shock or, or adaptable decision making for programming and that's right. one thing that i think you know we look at templates we look at program design we don't think about them we think about them as exercises or 
young emerging practitioners tend to think about them exercises because they're taught like that as opposed to stimuluses. And, and if you think on a stimulus level, okay, we're trying to inc- increase strength with a high intensity of load through a lower body lift. We've got a lot of options at our disposal. I wonder if, was your background rugby or you, you probably had a better training um, history than the players you were programming for, right? Yeah, it, it was predominantly in football, actually, but I'd spent a lot more time. I'd actually spent about five years coaching in gyms as a, as a PT before I'd started working in football. So it was a domain I was very comfortable in. And I think was your context, was that your context for working with those athletes that you went, well, if my gem pop person can lift 100K for five reps, did you chase that with your footballers? Was that a mistake? There was an element of that where I thought, well, these guys are elite. So surely they're already doing yeah. these basic things yeah. and I've got to level up with this advanced programming. And, you know, making the mistakes of doing high load RDLs two days before a game and wondering why this guy's talking about slow hamstrings. Like, mate, Cam, what are you talking about? You just, you've been a bit soft, you know. It was that. It was, it was sort of, it was stereotyping that, which was wrong. But it was, again, through those errors. And a few of them were nice enough to sort of remind me that, mate, that's not ideal and we need to be doing this. Did I overcome those things? But for sure... The, the tricky look i think in any program sure it's defined the success is defined by trying to get some good results improving i don't know outcomes of strength power speed whatever but i think uh, by and large sometimes a bigger success definition is can you get the tricky characters to do the things that are going to keep them healthy enough to then maybe in time or longer longer down the path start to do some of the more performance orientated stuff that they then they lean into but it's just understanding how to play those individuals again i love in just sticking on this programming route at the minute because it's so relevant for, for a lot of emerging coaches in the strength and conditioning field but do you look back at that program and did you write program design did you have a program design approach in spite of the sport like in all honesty was it was it that it was like this is what i think an athlete should be like or or was there at that stage of your career a consideration to understand the game style or what was most important for the head coach, et cetera. Did any of that come into the mistakes? No, it didn't. I didn't have, I didn't have the foresight at the time to go to the coach and ask, right, how would you like to set up your midfielders physically? And what kind of things would you like them to do physically? I looked at, um, I don't I think it was like a, a Tudor bumper periodization book. Oh God, oh, there's a, there's a speed strength program. And I think it's two, it's three days before a game. That feels about right. I'll whack that in there. There you go. And, and, that, and that was the template. And I ran everyone through the same template. Over time, some of the more experienced heads will go, listen, this isn't working for me. I can't do this because of my back. I want to do this. And it was like, oh, oh, well, you've got experience. I'll follow from you. But for sure. Was, was I that players that, or practitioners? That was players. Because uh, I was on my, in the football yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like you were on your own. Yeah. It's waiting and, and trying to make it up on the spot some, in some instances or via Tudor Bomper in his book and others. So was, it, was that a mistake in itself as well? Was that yeah. like an inability to ask for help or a foresight to say, what do you think to this before I roll it out? You know? There, there was definitely an ignorance with, I've done enough reading. I've got some confidence in this as a source. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with this. Yeah. And it was the arrogance to believe that that would be successful 100% of the time when it was probably only successful about 20 to 30% of the time. Yeah. And what really would have enabled me, as you talk about, is the adaptable programming edge to have more conversations at the very forefront of that and go, what do we think about this? And at the time I was just too besotted with sets, reps, Excels, templates, and schemes, and believing that if that was better than what they'd ever seen before, 
that were going to look at me as this is the right guy for the role who can deliver some good things here. So, did, did you get absorbed within the inf- within the environment you were in as well? Did you spend much time looking out to other practitioners in other sports, or did you become quite consumed? Again, was that another programming like blindside? Initially, I would say because of network as well, I didn't look too much outside. I I believed that the sources that I was looking at books, journals, and otherwise was the solution, rather than speaking to more experienced heads than myself who've been there, done it, and got the t-shirt or like another peer in the organization, which I didn't have, that could go, by the way, this is a success route for you and this is what we've seen and try this. What I found myself doing uh, toward the end of that first year was we actually had a, a, a lone e-player on, from Chelsea and came with a performance director who had a strength and conditioning background. And that was incredibly insightful. And almost overnight, my programs changed because I saw a very different template and I saw a very different approach that was very much athlete-led, that was far more competency movement competency driven rather than just can i get this player to lift one and a half times their body mass on a squat so that was far more intuitive far more relevant and actually i'd started to work i think a bit closer with the physio as well who would say listen this player could do with a bit more hamstring strength or this this guy's got an injury injury history of ankles can we factor these into our warm-ups and our program so then it started to take on more of an adaptable edge but it it took a long time to get there (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and it, I mean, look, let's look at the reasons why. It's because it requires social skills upon your that, that uh, are underpinned by your your knowledge, your technical knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we we all have the same technical knowledge. It's who can deliver the right program in the right way. Mm-hmm. But I think just for the last sort of five ten minutes here, if we pivot, I think we talked offline a little bit more about leadership and mm-hmm. what about mistakes in that sense, um, either with you know, yeah, in your experiences of leadership, you were going to jump in on some examples there. Not very much and I'd, I'd had the fortune to do have a couple of um, leadership roles in rugby and in football uh, and in snow sports and and certainly the early the early examples of leadership that I had was that good leadership was showing up earlier than everyone else it was working harder than everyone else and it was doing the diligence that others weren't necessarily prepared to do at times be that just always on it incredibly detailed um, almost develop, uh, delivering the best sessions, like being the best character on show that time. Even even taking on a bit of a of a front and a show to show that I could be the guy that would, you know, build great relationships, get great rapport, and have people laughing, but doing great work at the same time. I lost the means of really, which was how am I helping my my staff and the people that I influence and lead to almost to also develop some of these what I believe to be you know, expert qualities. And I, th- I, I led really, again, naively, just through, I guess, my own sheer experience and seeing others that actually behaviorally and doing the things without really speaking about what's important to us in the environment and our strategies as a group was that I just believe that it would just follow by osmosis. And so was that you, did that look like you stepping in to lead by example and expect mm-hmm. them to just copy? Yeah. Very much so. E- very- even just, did you step in to save people at times? What I would do is we'd have conversations about how do you think that warm-up went? Do you think, how do you think we could do this a bit differently? Did you notice that this and this and this wasn't maybe as, as you wanted it? And why do you think that was? Individual conversations. And I think I worked more closely with individuals. We didn't necessarily have a structure, nor had I been privy to a structure before that really set you up before you got on the grass or before you got in the weight room with, 
what are our success metrics this year and how does that look and how can we help our players or athletes shape into some of those areas and how are we going to work together as a staff and as a unit to support and or challenge the players and the people that we work with and and our other integrated disciplines of staff so i didn't necessarily have that and, and invariably that's something that i developed over time again through, through the mistakes and experiences where i realized that one or two trick individuals who want to go off on one avenue or, or so they needed to be kind of more online yeah. with them. so then those conversations follow so i'm trying to visualize this in my head it would look it sounds like it would look like john comes in he's got a very structured organized system he knows what a warm-up should look like he knows how it should be delivered he knows what a quality session looks like and he's gonna be the coach in those environments and lead by example and expect people to 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 copy and follow and pick it up by osmosis as you talk about but that's all at that point that's all been done with again that lack of context to the needs of the sport yeah. it's almost done in isolation and therefore there's no understanding of why from your star Mm-hmm. And I talk to practitioners about reference points. It's far easier to drive people towards an action or behavior if you've created a reason why. And you talked about in this pre-planning, right? This performance planning of what is it we're going to do? What are our success metrics? And again, so it just sounds like you've, you know, through no fault of your own and no intention or malintention, but just gone into something with a, te- a bit of a textbook approach, and and it seems to have come unraveled a little bit. But what? Just to wrap up here then, what are sort of some of the the big changes in your practice then from that learning? Mm. So, I mean, you know, the role that I find myself in in today is less of directly line managing individuals that I work with because, you know, I'm a sole practitioner working with an individual driver and then the stakeholders around that individual, which is their management. It's often their parents involved as well at times and or other close friendships there. And then it's trackside with the engineers, with the mechanics, with the team principals, and, and other influential people who come into that space as well from media. Um, they're incredibly sought after from a different area. So what I recognize is that whilst I might, in a really idyllic world, have this perfect structure laid out and have agreed much of that with the individual, the athlete, and have them privy to that, more often than not, that just gets challenged and we have to change parts of that script based on the challenges that others from those, that stakeholder group or beyond that wider group, they impose upon us. So then it, I recognize my greatest skill set really can help the person. He's not just delivering those individual tasks or things on the checklist, but going ahead of time and finding a common ground and a place of sometimes compromise, but ideally agreement to say, this is what we understand is really important for this individual to achieve X, Y, Z. How can we both work together effectively to deliver and achieve that? And just having those regular conversations at the start of the relationship and regularly checking in and then casually trying to manage and build a relationship alongside that at the same time. Nice. Nice. Cool. Yeah, it sounds like there's, and I made this mistake as well. I think most emerging practitioners in their early career will of over planning and actually having the confidence to do less is, mm-hmm. is a powerful place to be because you can go exactly where the performance of an environment or set of people needs to go then. And you know both those examples you've given are fascinating because they're quite rigid in some some senses, and that the real world doesn't operate like that. Yes. But the way we're taught and the way we emerge as coaches into the early stage of our career is orientated towards that rigid textbook approach. But look, just so. to wrap up, I was wondering if there's one piece of advice. Obviously, we want to encourage practitioners to embrace mistakes, 
soft mistakes as such, but yeah. how do they cope with those things? If you've got one piece of advice for practitioners in terms of once they've made a mistake, how do they make good on that? I would say through the, the, the times in my career when I've grown the most have been in two areas. When I've, I've been reflective enough to be honest with myself about mistakes that I've made and then put things in place to make sure I don't make the same mistake twice. And then secondly, alongside that, almost fast tracking that is having a mentor. Now, I know that it's an area that's close to you and it's been close to some of the work that I've done previously as well. But having somewhere that's someone that's been there, worn the t-shirt, and maybe not even in your environment, but has a richness of the experience and all the foresight and context because they've been where you are and face the same challenges and or can see things from a different perspective that you frankly can't because of confirmation bias and other things that can help you overcome some of those challenges or just help you figure out how to get through a day that you're having a bit of a bad day on. So it's those are the two the two common things right yeah i 100 percent agree especially there's there's a comfort in just conversing about your ideas which it sounds like you missed in that early stage of your career and um when you start explaining your whys you you understand whether it's truly relevant contextual to an environment sometimes you just get the answer yourself just through sharing Um, and i think that's a really powerful place to be but look again a really whistle stop tour uh to your mistakes and lessons learned and I, I really appreciate it um again on behalf of everyone listening thanks so much john for sharing and really appreciate it no absolute pleasure great to get your insights too mate thank you for your time so there we go another episode complete thanks to john for sharing so openly and candidly about the stumbles in his career i hope you learned some lessons from the mistakes john made and hopefully they prevent you from making some of the similar ones or maybe you can go me too i've made those mistakes as well it's not just me next week we move on to an episode with phil scott from england cricket where we look at program design for batters within cricket most specifically so please tune into that next week and i hope you're enjoying the podcast format so far